This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Corey Johnson. We're here every day bringing the latest news in the world of business and finance. And the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio. I focus on the policy issues. I do think the trade is important. I think that they, the president's raised important issues. I think that the trading partners should look at those issues. I think we should negotiate them in a way that makes sense for both parties. Well, uh, we'll see how, how the bank's influence are on the president, but obviously trying to influence a policy. Jamie Dimon there uh, talking about what's going on at the White House and with the federal government. Uh, Jenny Swain joins us right now, Bloomberg News bank reporter. Uh, and Jenny, talk to me about the approach that Wall Street is taking with the president right now. We heard from a couple of the different um, CEOs this morning, and it seems like they are certainly warming up. You know, these are the same CEOs who, when President Trump has something to say on immigration or, um, you know, DACA, for instance, we we get some rhetoric from these CEOs that, that kind of condemns that. And then um, this morning, it was a little bit of a different turn. They seem very pleased with tax reform um, and, and some of the economic policies that President Trump has. So kind of a different tack today. Um and yeah, we, we all know that President Trump arrives in Davos tomorrow, so it certainly feels like a little bit of a warming up ahead of his arrival. Fickle friends, strategic, what is it? It's hard to say. I mean, I think, I, I don't doubt that, um, you know, when they think about, especially like the employment market, like employees at their banks, they want people, they want the best people, and they and I think that immigration policies, they, they've said, uh, you know, the Muslim ban, for instance, a little over a year ago, um, that was not in their best interests. And so I think, I don't think that they're, um, you know, being fickle, I think that uh, right now, I think the way Lloyd Blankfein phrased it was, uh, there's more stuff I like than I don't like. And so uh, he likes the tax reform. He likes the economic policies. He likes stock market being at all-time highs. He just And that uh, would be true of whether there was a Democrat in the White House or a Republican in the White House, right? These Some of these things are good yeah. <laughs> for the big financial firms. Let's be fair here, That's right? That's definitely true. Exactly. So he, um, he, you know, I think this is the, so Bl- Lloyd Blankfein, I think it was a week ago, now he tweeted a picture of the, the the Statue of Liberty emerging from the fog and, and kind of said, "This is what I think of America." And so, yeah, I mean, I think it's just a complicated world for them right now. I think some of the the maybe social policies that mm-hmm. Donald Trump presents are a little bit hard for them to get behind, but they 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 don't hate what he's doing to their stock prices. Yeah, and uh, and you know, one politician meets another. I mean, you don't get to be CEO of a bank without having some degree of political skill. Yeah, that's true. Well, Jamie Dimon actually got asked this morning, are you planning to run for president? That's the perennial question for him. And he, this time it was a little different. He said, I'm not planning to. And they, uh, and so it's kind of a, normally he just Was he messing with us? What's going on He does, I mean, yes, he does love to mess with the media. This is the same CEO who um, has come before and, 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 you know, shook in his finger when we ask about fixed income trading during earnings. So he likes to mess with us. But um, but yeah, it was a little bit of a different tack. And, and I mean, he always sounds very political in his messages, but the, it was a little different today. Jenny, can we assume that President Trump, uh, we know he's going to be meeting with European leaders and other folks when he's in Davos. Uh, he's, I think he, arrived, he flies out on Thursday and gets there uh, on Friday. Should we assume that he'll be spending some time with some of the uh, CEOs at the big banks? Or it might just be haphazard in terms of maybe he runs into somebody? Yeah, I think, I so I, they didn't mention 
mention anything about specific meetings with Trump. Um, but we know that they, uh, you know, regularly are talking with regulators and, and folks that are in Trump circles. So um, I wouldn't be surprised if we saw them run into each other. But um, but yeah, I don't think anybody has mentioned any uh, on the record meetings, at least. Um, yeah. And, and uh, it is interesting, you know, the, the details. Is, I, I don't know. I, I'm, the positioning of anti-global pro-global campaign rhetoric now i i don't personally don't really care about that but i'm i'm I, it is curious sort of what business happens there once the president shows up and 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 that positioning kind of matters from these banks yes definitely um it's fascinating though i mean i don't know how much you guys are reaching out to the individual banks and their pr teams and saying well wait a minute i'm a little confused <laughs> you know let's rewind the tape here and you know so and so and listen also, again, to be fair, people can change their minds, right, mm -hmm. as policies are implemented. And in some cases, we've done some stories here at Bloomberg, too, that just talk about some of the policies and things that President Trump talked about on the campaign trail may have come true, but they weren't as severe uh, as everyone expected or not as extreme. So... Having said that, what are you hearing from some of the big banks and their PR teams? Just got about 40 seconds. Yeah, I mean, they, um, so I, I, we haven't heard from any of the PR teams, but I, I can imagine that they would say some of the, say some of those very things. You know, I don't think um, a year ago, tax people expected this kind of tax reform. And so mm -hmm. um, when they were first maybe coming out and, and being kind of tough on Trump and leaving some of his business councils and what it, whatever it was, um, I don't think any of our CEOs expected that. And there's some interesting policies in the financial sector, like less re regulations. I saw a story about the Volcker rule, potentially, you know, the rollback of that, which has been very extreme, uh, as some would describe it in terms of what it's done to financial. So, you know, if these things are easing up... It's hard not to be a bank CEO, a big bank CEO, and be kind of happy, maybe want to cozy up, have a seat next to President Trump. Yes, exactly. I think uh, it's good to have him in their corner. Jenny Serain, Payments and Regional Bank Reporter at Bloomberg News. This is Bloomberg Radio. Gonna keep on Bonds bounced around in the last quarter of 2017, and investors withdrew from the biggest high-yield bond ETFs just last Thursday in the face of higher rates and concern over a potential U.S. government shutdown. You know the government is back up and running at least for three weeks, uh, but uh, we still are talking a lot about uh, higher rates potentially. Uh, we've seen interest in the riskier debts uh, waning as U.S. Treasury yields have climbed. So let's get a look at credit and high yield. Marty Fritzen is back with us, Chief Investment Officer at Lehman Livian Fritzen Advisors in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. Welcome back. Happy New Year. Thank you. It's good to see you again. So what do you think will be kind of the significant trends when it comes to high yield this year? Well, uh, the good news is that the default rate looks uh, to be going a little lower. Uh, it's already below average. That makes you happy. Uh, yeah, that's no, that's good. And you know, and it's hard to get a real blowout. I, I just did a uh, kind of a webinar uh, you know, earlier this week, and uh, the, you know, the majority view was that spreads would widen uh, this year. It's, that doesn't sound unrealistic. And uh, of course, the Bloomberg uh, economic forecasters uh, started out expecting a 50 basis point rise in the 10-year Treasury yield. Uh, they aren't always right, but uh, so f we're up 20 basis points already this mm -hmm. year. Uh, so they may be on the right track. If you put those two together, that uh, puts a dent in returns, but uh, also suggests that almost certainly, uh, you know, high yield will do better than Treasuries. E even allowing for the difference in duration. Uh, if you're talking about that kind of a rise in the Treasury yields, that's going to uh, hurt very uh, badly there. 
Uh, and yet, um, you know, we've still got this very low-rate environment, even in the world of junk. Yeah, and I think that's a key question, whether we have come to the end of that. I mean, we, we really have been in a different monetary regime since the end of the uh, Great Recession. And, uh, you know, by the standards, if you, you sort of take into account as, as that as being a different kind of a period, high yield has actually uh, gotten to be back to be about fairly uh, priced right now. Um, but, uh, you know, not uh, quite as attractive if you don't allow for some difference in the current uh, environment. So the question is, how long will that last? It won't last forever. I certainly hope, hope not. Uh, you know, hope that the Fed will get back to more normal monetary policy at some point, but that uh, could start to change the picture. Marty, how do you read a story um, that we had and talked about, uh, about how investors are withdrawing from the biggest high-yield bond exchange traded fund, ETF fund, uh, in the face of higher rates and concern over that shutdown? Um, you know, and we also had Morgan Stanley, right, saying, uh, what did they do? They yanked mm -hmm. Uh, a bunch yeah. of money and saying ba basically it's, it's too late in this market cycle to bet on high-yield bonds. They're kind of saying, done. Yeah, well, I think it's an interesting question what to bet on <laughs> instead. Uh, but the, the record has been pretty consistently that uh, high yield has outperformed investment-grade bonds and treasuries during uh, rate rises. You know, we've had three rises of in the neighborhood of 50 to 125 basis points in treasury yields since the uh, recession ended, and high yield in uh, you know two out of those three actually provide uh, provided a capital gain. You know, in addition to positive returns mm -hmm. consistently and outperforming. Does it matter what kind of rate rising environment it is, meaning, you know, more aggressive versus kind of slow and steady, which is kind of what we're in? Yeah, I think that uh, something that's uh, more of a shock is going to cause people to become more risk averse. And of course, that doesn't help high yield. But uh, to the extent that the rate... Well, it sort of does. I mean, it helps the returns go up, right? I guess the prices fall, but the returns go up. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, you, you'll be able to re invest at higher rates uh, in the future for sure. Uh, but, uh, the, you know, in general, the rising rates are a reflection of a strengthening economy, and that helps. And I think what's not well understood is that people say, well, but these companies are just barely covering their interest, as, the, as, as, they, as a lot of people view it. Uh, won't they be hurt by the rising interest rates? Well, the average life of the high-yield bonds in the index is uh, over six years. So it's not as if all of their debt is sitting there at a floating rate and about to be refinanced, refinanced within the next year. So it takes a uh, considerable time for that rise in rates really to flow into their overall borrowing costs, but the top-line effects can happen uh, just about instantaneously. So to that, I mean, what are we? Ex what's a reasonable expectation of return in high yield now, given the low-rate environment? and? And you know, our 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 investors or, or even your customers sort of being forced to, or should they start to adjust their expectation of return here since it's it's been so so much lower for so much longer? Yeah, the um, low yields uh, as a reflection of the underlying treasury yields uh, being historically low, plus the narrow rates does uh, limit it. I mean, you you uh, you know, you did have a, a nice capital gain last year despite that, but yields are even lower than you started out last year. So uh, I think investors should be very happy if they 
earn a, even a mid-single-digit return this year in light of uh, everything uh, that we've spoken about. And, uh, you know, the longer-run expectation would be uh, pretty uh, modest because uh, of the expectation you'd have a reversion of the mean in yields. Um, but, you know, that, that bet hasn't played out so far. You sound like you sound a little frustrated. Well, uh, <laughs> no, I, I think that uh, it, 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 you know a lot of the uh, the pundits have been uh, uh, you know foiled by uh, events, uh, but uh, we, you know could, with, again with the uh, tr uh, the default rate uh, not going higher um, under ordinary circumstances, you really you should not have a massive mm -hmm. uh, widening of spread. So again, if you look at the uh, at the options within the fixed income universe, you know, high yield uh, might not be too bad a place to be this year. Um, what's the risk in this market? And just got uh, about 20 seconds. Yeah, I, I would say uh, just a, a, any kind of shock that upsets what appears to be a strengthening economy. Uh, anything that changes that really alters the picture for sure. Yeah, especially since it seems like everybody's all in on this synchronized global growth. Everything's great globally. Yep. If that doesn't happen, that would certainly be a surprise. Marty, thank you. Really a pleasure. Marty Fritzen, Chief Investment Officer at Lehman Livian, Fritzen Advisors, in our Bloomberg 1130 studio on this Wednesday. This is Bloomberg Radio. <laughs> Good times, bad times. Yep, GE has certainly had its shares, but right now it's more like bad times. GE woes deepening as SEC investigation throws a wrench into a turnaround at the company. Let's talk uh, a little bit about General Electric today. Our Rick Clough is industrials reporter at Bloomberg News along with Joel Levington, senior credit analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. Both of them in our Bloomberg 1130 studio in New York. Right now, shares of GE are down 2.2% uh, at $16.53 a share. Uh, Rick, why don't you get a going for us. Um, talk us through the news that we got through from General Electric today. You know, we actually got a lot of news from General Electric today. Uh, it, it, it's funny you mentioned good times and bad times because you can see that just in the stock today. It was actually up mm -hmm. almost 6% pre-market because they reported earnings and they were actually pretty decent. Um, they actually missed slightly uh, on, on the quarterly EPS but stood by their their forecast uh, for the year. And so, you know, I think there was some, some um, hope that maybe, you know, things had kind of stabilized at, at at GE after a, a pretty tumultuous stretch. And then on the, the conference call, they disclosed that the SEC has um, opened invest an investigation into um, uh, the circumstances that led to them um, uh, disclosing a rather large charge against a, an insurance portfolio last week, as well as some um, uh, service contracts in their power business. Talk about burying the lead. I, I love that, right. right? The headline came out from General Electric before the market opened. Bloomberg puts out a story, GE sticks to 2018 profit forecast, sending shares higher, as you mentioned, higher in the pre-market. Then comes the headline that, that this company is subject to an SEC investigation. Of course, that too becomes our lead. Um, you know, Rick, what do we make of this? Well, it still um, remains to be seen exactly how we should interpret this. I mean, there's no doubt how the, the market is interpreting it right off the bat, but we don't have a lot of information at this point. What we do know is that the uh, the, the things that, that this investigation covers are areas that um, that GE has already flagged as issues and, and things that they are taking steps to address. So, um, uh, you know, to take an, an optimistic view of this, you know, they, they, they already 
already are aware and um, and perhaps have already addressed the issues. Um, but then again, you mm. know, with the with the regulators investigating, who knows what they're what they might turn up. I mean, uh, you know, Joel, let me bring you in here. I mean, the uh, good times, bad times, the stock chart looks like uh, like John Bonham uh, right now, <laughs> kind of heading six feet under. I mean, ouch. Too soon? Uh, yeah. Too maybe, soon? The, the, maybe. Maybe always too soon. <laughs> uh, and in any case, it looks bad. It doesn't look good for GE right now. And so in a, in a credit, uh, but, but there is free cash flow and they can probably pay their debt. Uh, yeah, the fact that you have to say they can probably pay their debt uh, on a single A-rated entity tells you something, and that's what the bond market is saying. The bonds have widened out uh, to about three notches lower than where the rating agencies are. And I think if you looked at some of the peers that would be in that category, uh, names like uh, Fordiv or Eaton or even Ingersoll Rand, and you said, you know, like over the course of the next year, what do you feel more comfortable with? I think most uh, investors might look to those triple Bs as having better fundamentals than, than what you have at GE. There's just a, a lot of volatility there. And to Rick's point, I, you know, the stock went down after the SEC announcement simply because that adds volatility. It's just another issue that they're going to have to work through. Well, it's like, you know, uh, okay, now what else? I mean, what does this mean potentially? I mean, if they start selling off assets, will that help, though, in de-risking GE's balance sheet or not necessarily? It can. Uh, and uh, we put out an interactive model on the terminal yesterday where investors can go and pick what assets they'd like to see sold and at what haircut, because obviously as a forced seller, you, you don't always get the full price that you'd like. Right. And to see what that, what that would do. I think that the, 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 the bottom line is uh, asset sales could help. But I'm not really sure that they have really gotten their heads around the fact that what they've turned into is a liability management story and not a profit story, meaning that when you have uh, over $90 billion of debt outstanding and a $30 billion underfunded pension, people are worried about the risk side of this story and not the growth side. That's usually an opportunity for investors if there is any kind of growth side. That's absolutely correct. And I think it becomes, it, it might be something where we're talking in the summertime where there's some clarity around the power business and maybe they've worked through some of the bad contracts where there's an opportunity for people to start thinking about the getting out of this tunnel of tunnel of woe. What's, hey. the, what's the Warren Buffett line when other people are greedy get nervous and other people are nervous get greedy? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Hey, Rick, what's the, I don't know, what's the next focal point for investors when it comes to General Electric? Because it does feel like almost every week we've got a story. Just got about uh, 20 seconds here, 25 seconds. Yeah, I, I think the um, what they choose to do with the portfolio is really the next big thing. Um, you know, whether they break up the company or just sell off some pieces, they're going to update uh, investors in the spring on this. And so that's a, something that, that everybody's keeping in. And they have said that they're not, the CFO said, not overly concerned about the issues at the SEC is looking into. But Rick, does CFOs always say that? <laughs> well, or may they? Just... I, I don't know. But in this case, they really don't seem especially okay. concerned. I guess right. we'll see. Good to know. Right. But the stock is down a bunch, uh, a, little, a little bit more than 2%. Rick Clough, industrials reporter at Bloomberg News. Thank you so much. Joel Levington, thank you. Senior credit analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. As I mentioned, GE shares down 2.6% at $16.46 a share. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I wanna drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. Drive. We can reach
is the drive to the close. That punk the music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Cooper Abbott is chairman and president at Carillion Tower Advisors. It's a subsidiary of Raven James Financial, $64 billion in assets under management, based in St. Petersburg, Florida. But uh, he was tired of the 65 to 70 degree weather and decided to exchange it for the 35 to 40 degree weather here in New York City. Other than that, his advice is really sound. <laughs> exactly. I'm not saying anything. A lot of blue really skies what this here. guy's got <laughs> to say, listeners. He's obviously a genius. A lot of blue skies here. Hopefully we brought it there and more to follow. A real pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. Nice to have you in our in our in our New York studio. Um, you look at this market environment, and what do you see? You know, it seems like I, I guess what I would say is there's still lots of reasons to be positive. The fundamentals remain solid. Uh, global growth continues. I think whether you're looking at interest rates or the overall uh, debt environment, still very loose, very open in, ter- in terms of opportunities. I think from the U.S. perspective, you've also got the tax bill, which is going to help particularly domestic-based uh, companies, domestic revenue companies, as well as um, potentially the consumer. But I do think you don't want to be complacent in this market, and things are starting to change. You're starting to see some of the sector rotation, which I think shows new leadership. You're also looking at volatility starting to go up. You know, you can look at it at the VIX. Mm-hmm. You can also see it at a macro level. You know, the government shutdown, which we may well be repeating here in a couple of weeks, does say that there's more going on than, than meets uh, than, than, than is obvious. The other thing I would say is, even the correlations among the S&P 500 are starting to break down. Such it, as? Um, you, you look at just the way all the stocks are moving together, sector-wise, individual stocks. They're at the lowest level they've been in in probably five years. So this starts to set up an environment where I think the potential for distinguishing one company from another for active stock picking becomes very positive. Says the active stock picker. Well, you know, that's true. <laughs> and if you look at our track record, I think I think it's warranted, even in an environment where you've had this global stimulus across mm-hmm. the United States, uh, Bank of um, Bank of Japan, out of Europe. Our managers are still doing a very good job. And not, I'm not just talking about risk adjusted, not just alpha and information ratio, but in absolute terms. So I think the active passive debate is a very interesting one. I think the more choices you have, the better. But not all active managers are creative, e- created equal. And mm. the one thing I will say is one of the things we're also seeing in this environment where volatility is, is spiking up, where correlations are going down, you're also seeing a lot of capacity and fundamental research being decommissioned, being taken out of play. You see it on the sell side with mm-hmm. investment banks, mm-hmm. where they're getting out of the, the research component, but you're also seeing it on the buy side, on the asset management side. BlackRock's a great example where they're moving to machines and so forth. So there is an element where I still believe experience is very important. What worked last year may not work going forward. What worked for the past 10 years, by the way, since the crisis but may Cooper, not work going if, forward. But if so many people are working off of algorithms and machine learning and all that good stuff and yeah. artificial intelligence, you know, is it going to be hard for an active fund manager, active manager, to kind of compete against that? Because that can create incredible kind of flows and trends within the overall marketplace. Yeah, I think it's an excellent question. I, I think when everybody's looking at a marketplace the same way, and I think ultimately we have to remember a marketplace is not just the statistics or the information coming from the company, but it's also the human element. Mm-hmm. I mean, the these markets have people, there's human behavior, there's overshots, et cetera, et cetera. But I think when people are 
lind- moving into the market in the same way, you have the potential for overshooting. And I think that's one of the things when, when I talk to our managers, they're very focused on the company specific perspectives and they're well aware of what the algorithms are doing. I mean, the information, not to, not to, not to make a product placement, but the information that is available on a Bloomberg terminal that analysts, fundamental analysts have in front of them today is way different than it was five years ago or 10 years it ago. It's amazing. I'm, I'm considerably surprised for what I can find. Uh, well, and to that, so when you talk about correlation, because uh, there are varying degrees of, or the varying uh, ways to measure correlation, what do you use? Is, is it a particular index on the, on the Bloomberg terminal? Is it something else? I, I think S&P is, is a very good one because those tend to have very homogenous in terms of size and scale, tend to be globally oriented. Mm. If you look at S&P uh, 500 versus a Russell 2000 or a mid-cap, you see right. even, even more pronounced dispersion. So the plain old vanilla averages. That's right. That's right. To show that core, to show to show what things are if good companies are going up altogether with the bad companies, there's a real separation. I mean, you know, as as, as a journalist and a recovered uh, money manager, indeed a recovered. <laughs> I didn't need recovery from being Raymond James. I had great coverage at Raymond James. I'll have you know. Are you in uh, full recovery, by the way? Well, I'm still ticked <laughs> off about Inner Royal, but we don't need to get into that. Uh, Fair enough. But but I. I uh, um, but Wayne Andrews has moved on. Um, in any case, I, I think that. Um, uh, you know, you want the good companies to get rewarded for what they do well and not get dragged in with all the other companies that are doing poorly. But we still have tremendous correlation in this marketplace, albeit less. And I think part of the, the factor to remember is it's not just the headlines right now. There are cycles to these things. You know, the active versus passive debate was waged after the, the tech crisis and actually, quote unquote, passive outperformed quote-unquote active by a lot more back then and for a longer period of time. Mm. I do think it's worth mentioning that not all active is created equal. And there are there have been a number of players in the active space who charged fees but were really benchmark hugging. And that's right. something that from our perspective at Carillon at our different affiliates, whether it's a fundamental approach at Eagle Asset Management or a more quantitative-based approach, uh, Clarivest, they they look at things very differently. They are taking really concentrated positions that are based upon their experience as they build out these portfolios. Nice to get some time uh, with you. Thank you for coming in. A real pleasure. Thank you so much. Yeah, Cooper Abbott. He's chairman and president of Carillon Tower Advisor. $64 billion in assets under management, a unit of Raymond James. Move around. Motion creates emotion. I feel the earth move under my you move like they do. I've never seen anyone move that fast. All right, people, let's move like we've got a purpose. Something's called movers and shakers. They cost a little more, but that name cracked me up. Bloomberg Markets, Movers and Shakers, with Carol Masser and Corey Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. Nice to have Corey Johnson back here to talk about the uh, winners and losers, movers and shakers. Aw. Aw. S&P 500, 260 names in the index higher today, 241 lower, four unchanged. I'm going to, I'd like to talk actually about Texas Instruments because just about 24 hours ago, the numbers were crossing after the closing bell. Uh, Texas Instruments, number two decliner in the S&P 500, stock down 8.5%, down more than 10 bucks to $109.70 a share. TI, the largest maker of analog chips that are basic components of almost every electronic device that's out there. Well, Dumb the com- chips. 
Dump basically. chips? Is that what they yeah. call them? Dump chips? No, I'm, I, you know, they're, they're, they're analog chips. They're not super complicated. These aren't Intel uh, digital chips. They're not doing digital signal processing. These are the things that go in everything. Jeez, Corey, they the like you. Ones. I'm just saying. I like them, too. Anyway, they gave a sales forecast that fell short of some estimates amid weaker demand from phone equipment manufacturers. So quarter, uh, they're looking for first quarter profit of a buck one a share to 117 That compares with a 115 estimate that's out there. As for revenues, the forecast there was for $3.49 billion to $3.7 nine billion. The estimate that's out there is three point sixty four. So, you know, expectations were pretty much running high, uh, and so some disappointment there. Uh, also, disappointment shares United Airlines. United yes. Airlines shares UAL United Continental Holdings. I should say, uh, down biggest decliner in the S and P five hundred. Down, uh, we'll call it eleven percent, eleven point four. For those of you keeping score at home. Uh, United, uh, their growth plans uh, and, and their blueprint, which they've released some information about, and some analysts are talking about, uh, are suggesting they're not going to grow as much as, as, as uh, they'd expect them in terms of seating capacity. Um, one of the analysts out there using a phrase that I love from Evercore, uh, saying that they are snatching defeat from the jaws of victory, although I would say for someone with long legs, I'm okay with the fact that they're not adding more seats because the planes aren't getting much bigger, and I am. I'm not even as tall as you, and I'm like, enough already. It's 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 truly ridiculous. Uh, <sighs> in some of the seats, and some of the even upgraded seats, where you know they where they're essentially downgrading people for having normal seats in some cases, and it's uh, the customers are suffering, but the airline uh, investors seem to want that more revenue, regardless of what it does for the customer. People are getting taller, just FYI. Hey, uh, Granger is your number one gainer in the S&P 500. Stock up 18.5%. Check it out, Corey. Up 42 bucks to $271.97 a share. Uh, its biggest jump, intraday jump since 2000 after the industrial distributors' fourth quarter results and full-year outlook topped estimates. RBC analyst uh, Dean Dre saying that the quarterly beat was driven by a stronger U.S. industrial economy and a lower tax rate. Expects the manager to declare the upside is all from its new price discounting strategy, but also notes that short-cycle industrial demand has noticeably upticked. And talk about some upticks. As as again, uh, I'm just going to mention that stock up almost 19%, $271.97 a share. What's it doing this year? It's now up, mm, still 15, it's just up about 15%. So that big gain uh, this year, really much of the reason why it's up for the year overall. Um, Shares of Um, weed. Weed. Really? WEED is a ticker. Canopy Growth Corporation, one of the many cannabis-focused companies this is in Canada uh, that uh, failed to catch a bid today. Shares of weed were down 4% today. Aurora Cannabis, another one uh, that saw itself falling despite a merger uh, taking place up there. Uh, some analysts out sort of looking at the business saying, and in, in particular some short sellers out, uh, suggesting that these things are just massively overvalued right now and meager results. Uh, and even uh, with some legalization changes, uh, the, the, the growth expected of them might be too much. Uh, stocks selling off uh, with that uh, renewed skepticism. Even though I'll say short interest is generally light, uh, short interest mm. is a percentage of float is only 3% for shares of canopy growth. Little. It is uh, a big company, though. It's a $7 billion market cap company. It's a lot of weed. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, not selling off today, the VIX. The VIX, in fact, climbing three and a quarter percent to 11.46. The volatility index report for you there, rising for a second day in a row. This is Bloomberg Radio. All right, Dave, you're up. Uh, hi, uh, my name is Dave. Wilson, where are you? Wilson! Just what do you think you're doing, Dave? We're going for the price on Wilson. Open up the store, it's Dave. Who? Dave. Hey, Dave Wilson joins us right now, as if you couldn't tell, with the stock of the day. 
And that would be Marine Products, Corey. It's a company that doesn't get a whole lot of attention from Wall Street. They're a I don't maker. Know this one. Huh? I don't know this one. Well, they make Chaparral and Robolo Power Boats. The ticker is MPX. They've been publicly traded since 2001. That's when the company was spun off from an oil services provider called RPC. Huh. Now, data compiled by Bloomberg shows Marine Products has been followed by no more than four analysts since going public. Now there are just two, and their coverage goes back no further than September. That may help explain why you don't know this company, Corey. And let me tell you, the lack of attention is an issue when looking at Marine Products' performance. The company's fourth quarter results were released today, and the Bloomberg Terminal doesn't have anything in the way of earnings or sales estimates to measure against, you know, which we do with other companies as a matter of routine. Here's what we know. Marine Products' profit rose 35% from a year earlier, and revenue increased 15%. Uh, the company rebounded from slower growth rates earlier in the year, and on top of that, they raised their quarterly dividend by 43% to $0.10 cents a share. What we do know is probably enough to explain why Marine Products had its biggest one-day gain since December 2016. The shares rose more than 11% on the day. Up 22% this year. And I'll toss in uh, Marine Max uh, shares up 15, 16% today uh, after announcing a really strong quarter and a surprise. So that probably helped the whole sector. Although Brunswick, the boat supplier, uh, up only about 2% of the day. And the boat show underway in New York, just FYI, everybody. And, and apparently the Florida boat shows earlier in the month went really well in terms of pre-orders and the activity. Marine Max talked about that in the call today, too. We've had the CEO, Bill McGill, on before. He's a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, I'll reach out. We'll see if we can get him back. Motorboat kind of guy. Dave, great stuff. I'm a sailboat kind of gal. Just saying. I know. Dave Wilson. But it has a motor in it. Come on. <laughs> a little one. 10 horsepower. That's it. All right, everybody. You're listening to Bloomberg Markets right here on Bloomberg Radio. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio. And follow us on Twitter. She's at Carol Masser, and I'm at Corey TV. 